This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. The galaxies we hear, Episode of Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Warkowski. I am delighted to introduce this episode for this week. We took a little bit different turn. Um, a good friend of mine, Dr. Kristen Barber, I do a another podcast along with Dr. Ruse, Brianne, and um, Dr. Paula Clark. And Kristen, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point, brought me an idea. She has been working with this amazing group of individuals, parents, teachers, leaders, educators, and honestly, many of these people in this group hold multiple identities in this space. Um, And she asked if I would be interested in having a conversation with these folks about the work they do, the experiences they've had. And perhaps if if time permitted, we would talk a little bit about how things were going during the pandemic. And of course, I jumped at the opportunity and I had a chance to talk with Kristen and the group yesterday. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. We're calling it the Joseph T. Staley Jr. Scholarship for Awareness, Advocacy and Intervention Podcast Listening Tour. And it's a group, as I said, of... um, parents, a principal, a a couple of several teachers, career counselors, um, and other folks. And we really did spend a good bit of the hour speaking about the experiences of students with learning differences, the students um, and their parents and sort of how they have navigated. And it was wonderful because the group of individuals in the conversation have experiences that really cross the spectrum from you know, early on in education in the K-12 space through undergraduate experiences and also the the sort of post-schooling into careers and professional endeavors. And we had a few um, career professionals who joined us. And so, you know, it's it's one of those things where you go into a conversation prepared to talk about topics including neurodiversity, um, students with learning differences, the different kinds of supports and strategies available, what schools do and and don't do well. And of course, in in great fashion and an exciting fashion, we sort of, um, I don't know, uh, veered into other topics that were related, but a little different. So um, so I'm really happy to introduce this. It, it made me um, think about you know, the, the I, I like to tell a story, of course, in my podcast, and the thing that came to mind 
and as I was really listening to everybody, was this idea of differences. Now, as I said, we were talking specifically about learning differences, but we really kept coming back to this idea that oftentimes, in spite of you know, school structures and policies and traditions, students and teachers and leaders succeed. And we talked a lot about what's going on. And, and we had this had one guest, um, Dr. Garrett Westlake, who um, shared with us that he has dyslexia and that I believe he said that he was diagnosed in first or second grade with dyslexia. And what he said very honestly, and I so appreciated his honesty, is that he he hated school but loved learning. And that really resonated with me um, when we think about our students who, um, you know, on the outside seem to struggle. And, and what is the struggle? Well, oftentimes the struggle is related to trying to fit into a box, right, to fit into a category or to fit into expectations of the school, of the test, of the requirements for that grade, the 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 standard for that particular subject and so uh, Dr. Westlake's words of I hate I hated school but love learning just really sat with me and so we we veered off into a conversation around how this idea of inclusivity and inclusive classrooms is not just relevant to students who um, have learning differences but also students that just you know sort of I know the sort of idea of neurotypical but those students as well have their own differences. They come with different identities, different experiences, different family situations. And it just made me think a a lot about, you know, what does success look like when we are able to account for and value the contributions of all the differences that end up in your classrooms, virtual or otherwise. And as I was thinking about how to sort of segue into the conversation, I was thinking about a story when I was in, um, I was in, I was definitely was in high school. I can't remember if it was 10th or 11th grade. It doesn't really matter. And um, I know you'll think I'm a geek maybe for this, but I actually loved it. I was in a constitutional law class and became part of a constitutional law debate team. And really looking back and looking at pictures, I can sort of picture the the photo that someone took when we went to Washington, D.C. It was it was a good group of us. I mean, it was like 25 of us in the group, you know, about the size of the, the class itself. And if you look at the picture, oh, my goodness, we were a motley crew. I mean, this is a group that, you know, had had you told us we would be working together on anything, none of us would have believed it. It's that sort of idea. And when we think about school structures and norms and expectations, you know, we probably wouldn't have been sitting together at the cafeteria, you know, if you know what I mean. We were just different. We we walked with different groups. We hung out. We did different activities. And yet we were able to come together in these spaces. And I remember within that class, we had different teams who were competing. And so I was on a team with about five other uh, students in, like I said, the 10th or 11th grade. And we all brought, you know, our own unique style to this debate Um, A couple of my teammates were just really good at digging into the research and the nuance of the questions and the and the research and the evidence. Um, um, Somebody else was just really good at taking in the facts and could remember the minutia of just about everything that we talked about. And others were really good speakers because to debate, you had to be able to articulate. And so 
you know, and then another guy who's a wonderful guy, super smart and super funny. And so he brought this great sense of humor. And so I think back and um, we were like a well-oiled machine. I remember studying and we ended up going to the national finals and, and our team actually won. And I think we won because, you know, we didn't know it then. I mean, we weren't talking about inclusive classrooms, inclusivity and diversity and equity in the way we do now. But I think we did at that moment value each other for our unique contributions. It was like we could put aside the the structures, the traditional structures that are sort of imposed upon you when you enter a school and all the clicks and the trends that happen. And we had a we had a purpose and we were able to engage in that way. And so as I was preparing for this podcast, it sort of made me walk back down memory lane and think about that. And so I'm really looking forward to um, this interview and you listening to this interview. I really enjoyed it and I hope that you will too. And so this is Tell Me This, another episode of Tell Me This, and we're getting ready to listen to the Joseph T. Staley Scholarship for Awareness, Advocacy, and Intervention podcast listening tour. And today I am your host, Carrie Borkowski. Brianne Ruse will be joining us um, in a later episode. I gave her the day off because she's crazy busy and has been doing a lot for the podcast. So um, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. So welcome back to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and I am so excited that I finally get to introduce Kristen, Dr. Kristen Barber. Kristen, I got to remember to use that doctor. Dr. Kristen Barber is going to be a guest host today on an amazing interview with a group of individuals I'm so excited to introduce to you. So Kristen, welcome. Thanks, Carrie. It's always good to be here with you. And as we were just chatting before we went live, our group is expanding. We've got even more voices to be heard today and can't wait to share. You know, in my role as executive director of the National Institute for Learning Development, it is our passion to connect educators with understanding from learning science as to how do we really get to building the thinking skills, the learning skills of all types of learners. And neurodiversity is a population of learners that we particularly care for and want to have their voices heard. And so, Carrie, I'm delighted that we have a distinguished panel with us Mm. today from higher education, from K-12 setting, from parents, from personal stories, advocates. We just have a powerhouse today that I believe our listeners, your listeners, are really going to enjoy hearing their perspectives, gaining from their insights, and hopefully a call to action that's going to be transformational. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for that, Kristen. Yeah, we have a wonderful panel. I'm looking at everybody's faces. You guys don't have the luxury of seeing everybody, but it is a great smiling uh, group. So we're calling this the Joseph T. Stanley Jr. Scholarship for Awareness, Advocacy and Intervention Podcast Listening Tour. I just love that idea of a listening tour. So just to give a little background, I had to do some learning myself. The Joseph T. Stanley Jr. Scholarship for Awareness, Advocacy and Intervention um, is, is really to memorialize Joseph, who was a vibrant, intelligent young man who struggled in the classroom and fell through the cracks of an overworked education system. His parents, and his mom is here today along with his godmother, um, his parents were determined and Joseph eventually received the help he needed. Educational therapy from the National Institute for Learning Development, NILD, where Kristen is a, the executive director, 
and he beat the odds, graduated from high school with honors, and was accepted at Norfolk State University. Unfortunately, Joseph suffered from an undiagnosed medical condition, and before completing his bachelor's degree, he passed away. Sadly, his passing was not the only tragedy. As Joseph worked for his college degree, determined but unsupported, he again fell through the cracks. Joseph's parents and NILD want to make sure that no one else falls through the cracks of the education system. This scholarship is geared towards family whose students struggle to learn in a traditional classroom, students who may or may not have an identified learning disability. These families generally do not have the resources to get their children help, but they are willing to fight for equal educational opportunities for their children. This scholarship lends support in the areas of awareness, advocacy, testing, and services. That, that's amazing. I can't wait to hear more about Joseph, his mom, his journey, and more about what NILD has been doing around this work. So um, thanks to all of you again for, for joining us. Kristen, as I said, we have a pretty large panel, so I'm going to take a moment um, to introduce everybody. I really want to make sure um, we, we send props where, where we should. So Mrs. Simone Coleman has joined us, and she is um, the mom of Joseph Staley. She is a fierce advocate for students with neurodiversity, an educator in her own right. And Kristen was sharing with me, um, Ms. Mrs. Coleman has an extensive experience as a nurse. Um, she even spent some time as a police detective. That's crazy. I want to hear more about that. So Mrs. Coleman, welcome. Um, Mrs. Sean-Andre Blissett, I apologize if I got that first name wrong, you'll have to correct me, is a principal at the Academy for Excellence in Leadership, a 9 through 12 uh, school in Brooklyn, New York. It's a public school. It was founded back in 2006, and it works to ensure a better tomorrow by empowering students through rigorous instruction to become self-reliant, resilient, responsible leaders, and caretakers of the earth. Principal Blissett has led AEL since 2015 after switching roles with the founding principal, who now serves as the assistant principal of supervision. AEL's student population consists of 44% English language learners, 20% students with disabilities, and to help, they help students develop their English proficiency in reading and writing development. The instructional focus of the school is for students to actively build on each other's ideas by asking questions and responding to each other during class discussions. Just love that. I'd love to go to school there, uh, Mrs. Blissett. So that sounds wonderful. Mrs. Samantha Popo is also joining us, a high school special educator who has taught history and English for the past 10 years. Now in her 11th year, she realizes that teaching is about filling her students with knowledge and empowerment and does so by creating opportunities for students to form a sense of ownership and autonomy. Whenever possible, she gives her students choice and a voice in order to help them create their goals. She enjoys celebrating small victories in her students' lives, which she know will impact their success. And she came to the Academy for Excellence in Leadership in 2009 after dedicating much of her time working with adults and young teens with disabilities. She has discovered that often students with special needs lack social opportunities because they can have a harder time socializing and, and interacting. She's made it her mission to educate others about disabilities in the hopes that it removes uncertainty and fear. So welcome, Ms. Popo. Thanks for joining us. 
Shakoria Maxwell is a 17-year-old student, a 10th grader at the Academy for Excellence. So we'll get to hear more about that school. And she's currently on track to graduate in 2023. Woo! <laughs> After high school, she said she wants to go to college to be a pediatrician. Um, that's what she's always wanted to do. And she also hopes to study business management because one day she wants to open her own practice. Sounds wonderful. Susan Voril is the Director of Employment and Transition Initiatives at University of Arizona, where she worked in the field supporting individuals who have disabilities for nearly 20 years in several capacities. Her current role at the University of Arizona as the Director of Employment and Transition Initiatives has allowed her to continue to focus on system change and improving outcomes for individuals who have disabilities. So Kristen, you're right, we're really moving through all of the sort of areas of education from K to 12 to, to getting a career. So this is lovely. Dr. Garrett Westlake is joining us. He is a university administrator and founder of a technology company employing individuals on the autism spectrum. He is also leading the transformation of Virginia Commonwealth University into one of the nation's leading universities for cross-disciplinary collaboration and innovation. And in his role as executive director of the Da Vinci Center for Innovation, Dr. Westlake advances university-wide student innovation through curriculum as well as through curated experiential education opportunities. That sounds like a lot of fun there, Dr. Westlake. So <laughs> he's also a visiting scholar at Northern Michigan's University SISU Institute for Innovation and Educational Transformation. Dr. Westlake also founded, I don't know how you have time to do all this, Garrett. Um, he founded a social impact company that employed individuals with autism in STEM. And prior to joining VCU, he served as the Associate Dean of Student Entrepreneurship for Arizona State's number one ranked office of entrepreneurship and innovation. And he worked close, closely with Ashoka University, the Clinton Global Initiative University, and the Network for Teaching entrepreneurship students and startups he has uh, mentored have been re renamed to Forbes 30 under 30 for healthcare innovation, awarded Rhodes Scholars, named Resolution Project Fellows, and have been accepted uh, to SXSW and Y Combinator. You'll have to tell us what that's about, Dr. Westlake. And he's a certified facilitator of design thinking. So welcome to you too, Garrett. Thanks for joining us today. Dr. Terry Mats Mat uh, Matsunaga, there we go, Matsunaga, can you give me a thumbs up there? All right, got it. <laughs> He's a professor in medical imaging at the University of Arizona, Tucson. He serves as an, and also serves as an adjunct professor in biomedical engineering. He came to Arizona after spending 16 years in the private sector where he developed an FDA approved and honestly, I hope we'll hear a little bit about this because I wrote this down and have no idea what it is. Um, approved lipid-coated microbubble, which sold under the brand name Definity. He's currently focused on targeted microbubbles for cancer imaging as well as drug and gene delivery. So I let's see. Sorry, JC Rivers has also joined us and is an advocate and supporter of this work. And we are also joined by Veronica Funches, who is. Joseph's grandmother, or grandmother, godmother, my apologies, <laughs> godmother. So welcome to everybody. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is, uh, it's a pleasure to have you um, here today. And so Kristen, I think, um, I don't know wh where you'd like to start. I would love um, actually to hear if um, Mrs. Coleman was willing. I would love to hear just a little bit from you to start us off before we sort of jump into the questions. Maybe, I don't know, I would love to hear um, 
gosh, there's probably so many stories, but I'd love to hear a little bit about Joseph just so that our audience can get a sense of this, this wonderful um, young man that was described in the, in the narrative of the scholarship. So would you mind sharing Ms. Coleman, if you feel like it? I think she's trying to unmute. So there we go. Okay, thank you. No problem at all with, uh, with sharing Joseph's story. Um, Joseph was a, a really vibrant, inquisitive you got um, young person always asking questions, extremely articulate. And um, he was always um, in private schooling. Um, I knew Joseph was a bit over hyper or what have you. So this is why I chose uh, these type of settings where his energy could be nurtured. Um, maybe in about, at about, maybe 10 years old, 11 years old, um, the administrator then asked that I began to get Joseph tested. In, in private schooling, Joseph was in a setting where um, he was able to learn based on where his strengths lie. And, and because he was extremely articulate, he was able to explain and, and, and this is how he um, submitted his, uh, his paperwork with explanation, all types of things like that. So it was really a a creative environment. But what we noticed was that um, when uh, he came home, it seems as though he didn't remember anything from his day's work. And um, I was expressing a concern because I was teaching him all of the day's lessons every day at home again. So we um, wow. we had gotten him tested through the Board of Education. Joseph also was um, grieving, but at that young tender age, he lost his dad. Mm. He did not have words of expression. So I believe this is what contributed also to his hyperactivity. That was my belief system. Mm. So we, he was tested through the Board of Ed. I received a report back that basically he was retarded and my 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 stomach was turned inside out because how do I explain what the professionals and the doctors have written about my son so um I decided to hire a lawyer and uh, to fight the board of education to provide the services for Joseph for which I thought I was paying out of pocket. And I began to understand that he probably needed a whole lot more. So uh, I remember the call distinctly from the attorney and um, she was asking me questions if Joseph had a helmet on, if, um, if he wasn't focused, if he, and I thought these questions were rather bizarre. So I, I said to her, you know what? I'm not going to defend or answer any of these questions. Hmm. Are you open to coming to my house and to see Joseph in his natural environment? So when she uh, she comes over, she walks in, she has a phone in her hand. Joseph greets her at the door because he was very much the talker. And he says, hello, and he sticks <laughs> out his hand. My name is Joseph. Um, who are you and why do you have a folder with my name on it? And she looks at me. And so 
Um, she says, Joseph, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to spend some time to speak with you. I talk to your mom. Sure, you know. And he sits on the floor playing his toys. And then she uh, goes in another room and she speaks with Joseph. She became so incensed that she took Joseph's case pro bono. Mm. She says that it was a disservice on um, what was written, what she, and, you know, uh, ironically, she was an attorney for the Board of Education <laughs> at one point. <laughs> so, so she then began, to, she took Joseph's um, case on and, uh, and so we, um, we were able to make, um, we, we had a lot of victories under the No Child Left Behind, mm -hmm. in which now the Board of Education was now required to provide Joseph the services that he needed. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, I, um, I was proposed to and married and I was moving to Virginia. And um, after this long battle of fighting the Board of Education, mm -hmm. I, um, I was driving down the street and I see this small sign to my left and it says National Institute of Learning. At that time, it said disabilities. And I stopped the car, I turned around, made a U-turn, and I said, because I'm just learning this new word, uh, learning, please, I don't know what that is. I really don't understand what it means. And I go up there and I, and I ask if there's someone I can talk to who can tell me what they did there. And I met Kristen. Oh my gosh. And um, <laughs> I began to... Uh, tell Kristen the struggles I had been through. I really didn't know what direction to go in now and if she would be able to help. And she began to show me um, a notebook of a student that, that, they, that was in uh, her program. And it looked like Joseph's handwriting. Um, and then she began to show me the progression of that student. And I just began sobbing because for the first time I felt that there was help for myself. And, um, and we signed Joseph up. I then couldn't afford Christian's program and private school at the same time, mm. because this program, I mean, this was college tuition money that we were talking about. And yeah. um, so I, I asked Kristen if she would join me in advocating for the Board of Ed to provide the services that that um, Joseph was entitled to, and uh, and we and he can also utilize their services. And um, one thing I I like to say for parents who go through IEP meetings, um, justice that is, you have a panel of professionals and doctors and all different disciplines, and then it's the parent and the student. How does a parent begin to advocate for their child? with all of this professional advice coming at them, terminology that they're not familiar with, and they're totally out of their realm. How do you begin? But they weren't ready for me because I asked Kristen, we tested Joseph, we did the battery of tests for the Woodcock Johnson and the Wessler um, exams, and we did them in completion, which the Board of Ed does not do. And, um, and then I, and Kristen formalized her team and we went also as a team to advocate for Joseph. And, and um, we were able to give Joseph every service he needed. Joseph was the first student in Virginia 
to have a one-to-one -one para in every class that he attended um, based on what his disabilities are. But every student should have access to that. And this way, we customized his IEPs. Um, we were able to, to, um, to customize them as he progressed. He was in mainstream classes and, um, and it, it empowered him to advocate the para away in his 12th grade. <laughs> so he no longer wanted the para. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And Simone, Simone, I love how you've taken us sort of from the evolution, the beginning of the story of Joe, of as you discovered as a parent, this growing awareness, then you're reaching out into the community to connect. And I think what I'd like to do before you tell the sort of the back half of the story is to invite Mrs. Blissett, some of the, the K-12 educators who are in that learning context of how can we help educators be more aware to identify students who potentially are struggling? And then how are they acting as advocates in their um, spheres of influence? Because we, like we've said, don't want another Joseph to happen for another family, another parent, another student. So I think we've got some key people in the K-12 setting from Mrs. Lissette, Mrs. Popo, as well as from Shakoria herself, a student and hearing that voice. So maybe Mrs. Blissett, if we can start with you, we'd love to hear what are you and your team doing to help awareness, identification and support of these students who learn differently? Thank you, thank you for that. And um, I just want again to thank you for inviting AEL to be part of this panel because I think it's important to um, for people to know what we go through in the New York City Department of Education. Um, for the most part, and I'm gonna really turn it over to Ms. Popo in a few minutes, but for the most part, what we do is we try to get our students to, if they come with an IEP, to come knowing what their goal, their learning goals are and to be advocates and to be part of making sure they're getting the services that they need. And then over time, just like Joseph did, we do want to see the students sort of um, wean off of the need for the, the accommodations because the goal is to get them ready for college and career. And you know, when you get into the world, you're not gonna be able to have the power right there with you or the accommodations that maybe you might need in high school, however, as Mrs. Coleman has said. However, if the child still needs those services when they get to college, then it should be there because not every student is going to be able to not have those services provided in the 12th grade. And then what do they do? You know, I don't, I don't know about Ms. Popo, but when I uh, was coming up in the Department of Education as a teacher, one of the things we heard was, well, you know, if the student has an IEP, they most likely won't be going to college probably have to find, you know, a career, um, you know, that they can do something with their hands. And we don't believe that here at AEL. We believe that our students will go to college, every single one of them. And the only way they won't go is if they choose not to go. You heard Shakoria say earlier, she wants to be a pediatrician. And not only that, she wants to open her own practice. So that's what we encourage. I love that agency and the <laughs> idea of empowering and knowledge really is power. And Carrie, as we talk about with our with our individuals as, as learners, 
when there's an awareness, when there's a recognition of this is what's going on for me, then there can be some of that ownership with the people in their lives that are supporting them. And Carrie, I know you've worked hard to um, allow people to have voices so mm-hmm. that they can have agency over some of those. Yeah, areas. I love, I mean, Mrs. Blissett, you couldn't have said it yeah. better, Let's, really. Uh, that, Mrs. This- this idea that this idea that sort of you support and and bring in the pairs for the students but the idea is that they eventually sort of put the pairs out of work right (laughs) that they're not needed and I think I would love to hear from Mrs. Popo as well and I think Kristen after Mrs. Popo I'd love to bring in our higher ed folks because I'd like to see what advocacy and support looks like both in a a college setting but also you know um, Dr. West like you were talking about some of the work you've done sort of professionally. And so what does that look like through the year? So uh, Ms. Popo, would you, uh, we would love to hear from you about what this looks like in your, your setting. Sure, so I just wanted to start off by saying, as an educator, I always try to focus on not what students with disabilities lack, but what they do well. And I guess, so working with students with disabilities over the years has sort of challenged me to provide more effective methods on ways to educate all of my students, not just the ones with disabilities. So I'm always seeking and discovering ways to provide a variety of strategies in which academic content is um, represented in the classroom. And I absolutely believe that children with disabilities have the right to be a part of the regular classroom programs. So we have to be able to provide reasonable accommodations and modifications that allow them to access and participate in the general ed curriculum but also they need that individualized supports that help them to sort of maximize the academic and social development, which is extremely important. You know, we speak of educating the whole child and we only sometimes focus on academics. So we have to focus on the whole child, which is essentially the goal of full inclusion. So, you know, I think students with disability just add a um, a certain diversity to the classroom and new strengths to the classroom, so it's very important. Um, I also wanted to add, I don't wanna monopolize the time, but I also um, (laughs) wanted to add that, you know, especially in the age of COVID, it's essential for Mm. teachers to, I guess, give a variety of resources to provide multiple strategies for improving chances of students succeeding. You know, a lot of students with disability are sort of starting behind, And a lot of those students will likely regress even more, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So I think it's imperative to make sure that we're doing everything possible. And that sort of means figuring out, you know, what works, being creative under these circumstances. So individual outreach to students and their families and just figuring out if the student has access to technology, if they're familiar with the computer, if they know how to log on. Um, we use Google Classroom, so if the students know how to log on to the Google Classroom, if they know how to access the work, if they know how to submit the work. So those are some of the things that we can do. And of course, working with some of the students with more severe um, disabilities, cognitive disabilities who have paras, we want to always make sure that we link in the para, have constant communication with them and the parents, email the parents, um, maintain that constant communication with the parents, the school staff, the leadership team. So it's always important that someone is able to work with the students specifically and just constantly provide them with the structure that they need and just be available if the student needs someone who can listen. So that would sort of be my advice. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you, Mrs. Popo, for for sharing that. I think... um, 
Oh, there's so much I loved about what you said. First, this the reminder that we focus on strengths, not not this sort of lacking. I think all of us here are shaking our heads vigorously. You can't, you don't have the, the luxury of seeing it, um, but it's good to say it out loud and remind everybody of that. I also really loved your focus on um, valuing the contributions of all students and the whole student and if I can give a shameless plug for the podcast, this is a podcast about belonging and cultivating those communities. And I, and I think one of the reasons I wanted to be a part of this great conversation is that um, students with learning disabilities do have a lot to offer to classrooms. And they, and in, in my unexpert, non-expert opinion, they should be a part of the classroom um, and for lots of reasons. And so building that, that that sense of belonging for all students, whether it's through accommodations, through paras, through doing activities that really highlight the contributions of those students is, is so important. So Ms. Popo, I really appreciate you bringing that in. And Kristen, I would love, and, and Ms. Popo mentioned the pandemic and we haven't forgotten about it. We are gonna get there because I think having this conversation within the context of a pandemic is critical. And so I, want, I would love to talk about that a little bit with our, our experts here. But I do not want to forget our higher ed folks, especially because I do sit in higher ed as well. So we've talked a lot about agency, advocacy, you know, a bit of scaffolding and also creating a sense of independence, right? Because that's the goal is sort of is being independent. And so I'd love to sort of understand better from Dr. Westlake and Dr. Matsunaga and Mrs. Voral and others. What does that look like in both a higher ed setting and also a professional setting? Like how, how do, I mean, because that's another transition, right? Kristen, we talk all about transitions even though they've sort of let go of the paraprofessional as Mrs. Blissett shared with us, you know, in 12th grade and as Joseph refused to have that paraprofessional, I would imagine when they enter professional world or a new higher ed world, there might be supports that are needed again, but in a different way. And so if, if folks want to jump in, I don't know, Dr. Westlake, you want to start us off? Sure. So again, thanks for having all of us. You know, it's listening to the conversation is is a little bit haunting for me. So, you know, this is also personal for me. I was diagnosed with dyslexia and dysgraphia in the first grade. Mm. Um, and the whole reason that I went into, you know, studying this academically was that they say that research is me search, right? So mm -hmm. when, when I got to college, I designed my own major to better understand the cognitive processes that underlie dyslexia and looked at dyslexia from the standpoint of computer science and linguistics and philosophy so that I could better understand my own. And then ended up writing software that taught computers to read and 5% of the time the computers developed dyslexia with the thought that why don't we run interventions on machines instead of kids. As a kid um, who hated school, that made a lot more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And I think my, my take on all of this and I continue to this day, I'm very transparent about the fact that I hate school. Um, mm -hmm. I've always hated school. Um, but I love learning. And to me, we unfortunately focus so much on school, which is the, the standard is this, you should be doing it this way, um, and less on learning. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of examples in my current work when I, so I, you know, served as a coordinator of disability services for a community college outside Nashville, Tennessee, and then as the director of the Disability Resource Center for Arizona State for six years, where we had 3,000 students uh, with different disabilities on the caseload. And and looking at all of this and what I get the chance to do now, you know, I spent my whole entire childhood basically trying to find workarounds and hacks mm -hmm. uh, to accomplish what people expected of me. And now all the industry wants is they want creative problem solvers and people to come <laughs> up with innovations 
and we teach design thinking, which asks this fundamental question, how might we? And, and it's all about trying to gain empathy with people and how might we? And that was like my entire childhood going to school every day was like, how am I going to get out of this? Like, how am I going to convince the teacher I don't have to take Spanish? Like, you know, and so I think that that knowing who you are and what your strengths are, what I find is so different is that kids are beat up on so much for being different and for not fitting the norm. And you're given this incredible, you know, deficit mindset your whole life. And then on the flip side, if you make it through that gauntlet, all society wants are people that think outside the box and can communicate really well and see it differently. And where is that talent? And you're like, that, that talent is people with learning disability. Like, like that, that, what are you talking about? Like the same people that you told didn't get it right their whole lives. And now that's all you want to hire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, that's, that's my take is that, you know, having been through it, I'm really focused now. And, and you know, I'll say too, I find K-12 to be too depressing. I can't, I can't bring myself. I get asked to participate in K-12. You know, I got a PhD in curriculum and instruction and special ed just so that I could talk trash about school. Um, and <laughs> while that's effective, I still can't bring myself to go back to the K-12 setting because the challenges there are so immense. Yes. Uh, and I find post-secondary to be a little bit easier place to solve some of these things that we're trying to do. And hopefully I'm not a, a fan of trickle down policies, but I'm hoping that the work that we can do in higher education can make its way to K-12 because I just find it too overwhelming. Yeah. Thank you. And our, again, our audience, I feel like I have to commentate Kristen for the, for the podcast listeners because our audience on zoom was clapping and cheering and Miss Blissett got really excited when, when Dr. Westlake was talking, I have to say, Dr. Westlake, I'm going to probably quote you um, for a long time, this idea of hating school, but loving learning that to me, that really resonated with me. I have a I have a third grader who's doing remote learning who now I'm going to start thinking of it that way because he does love learning. He just hates what he's having to do right now. So thank you for that sort of simple but really powerful quote. Um, Dr. Matsunaga, I would love to get your take. I know you had done some work you had said before we started earlier on with some programs around helping, um, I believe, autistic uh, kids with autism. Um, If you could Mm -hmm. speak a little bit more, that would be great. Well, well, actually, the genesis, the start of this is, was not uh, in the academic arena. It was because I have a son who has high-functioning autism. And I could tell you, uh, I can resonate with everything that's been said um, up, up through, post, through secondary education, the, the, the advocating for your son, the, the tutoring, the getting the resources that you need, the speech therapist, the uh, educational uh, what the educational therapist it was it was just an incredible journey and, and he actually uh, n- not to mention not to mention coming home and and um, reading with him every, about two hours a night uh, every night you know after after work um, but he he actually uh, excelled finally excelled in high school when he when he first started in elementary school he we got to the, I believe it was almost the seventh grade and we thought he was doing okay. We knew he couldn't read. And then the shock of our lives came when the teachers said, well, he may not be able to go into the seventh grade because he has the reading skills of a first grader and the math skills of a second grader. And I thought, oh, 
And while I knew he was a little bit behind, but I didn't quite know he was that far behind. How could that ever happen to me? So from then in the sixth grade, we put the pedal to the metal. Um, and in one year before the end of the sixth grade, he was, he was uh, up to his age match peers in mathematics, sixth, sixth grade level and fifth grade level in reading. And, and this continued on through high school. You, you transition to high school and you have to find, you have to advocate once again. It doesn't change when you get to college. Okay, he was fortunate enough to go to the University of Arizona. Um, <clears throat> the universities do have their, I guess, equivalent of, of an IEP, but you have, to, you have to learn how to navigate through, through the system again but with an even more difficult component because now you're not only in a school of 300 to 3,000, now you're in a school with 40,000 people running around every hour on the hour. Um, we've, we again had to advocate so much for um, all of his uh, tutors and, and the resources that were available. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a public university, in order to get grant funding, you have to have um, uh, what's called a, at the University of Arizona, a disability resource center, okay, which will provide extra time for exams and provide a quiet environment for, to take exams. But the things that we realized is that, is that you know, if you have a child with autism, uh, everyone is different, okay? And they have different needs and, and different requirements. And what we found was yes, he could he could uh, get extra time to take exams, just like in IEPs. He actually required two and a half hours for every hour that was needed to take an exam because his his thought processes were slow. But uh, uh, he could eventually get to the end of the end of the day and and uh, be able to express himself. It just took him two and a half times longer. Um, but what we didn't realize, even with some of these programs, I mean, these are the little glitches that occur, is that he could sit down, he could be in a quiet room all to himself, he could take two and a half hours to take an exam, but he didn't have anyone in those, in those uh, facilities to be able to interpret the questions for him if he was ever confused. And, and so then what we learned, and again, advocating for, for my son, we would go talk at the beginning of the semester, we would go talk to all of his professors, every last one of them, and, and say, well, he could, can he take ex an exam in your office? Because one of the problems is, is in, in the uh, learning centers, they could only read the question to him. Well, he can read, okay, he could read, but it's the understanding and the interpretation of it, which was the difficulty. And, and uh, to our surprise and somewhat to our amazement, I mean, he was in, he was in college for eight years <clears throat> because he could only take you know, 10 to 12 units a semester. It, it took him longer. Um, but of all the professors he's had, he's had, professor, he finally got his degree in graphic design, but he had art professor through the entire spectrum. He had calculus professors, 
He had astronomy professors, he had chemistry professors, he had art professors, he had geography professors, all except for two. And we're probably talking about 50, 50 professors, always agreed to let him take exams for two and a half hours in their office or right next to them so they could, so they could uh, help him whenever he um, had a question and he had, he had lots of questions. But this, this kind of told me something about the academic arena, uh, about a lot of the professors and, and teachers at the university. Uh, their, their job is to do, to do research, you know, bring in revenue, of course, for, for universities, but their job is actually to teach. And most of them are, really have a passion for teaching and they're always willing to help uh, any student, regardless of whether they're neurotypical or whether they're, um, you know, have have a disability um, um, or neurodiverse, I believe is the word. Uh, they're always willing to help a student that wants to learn, and and they could always tell that my son <laughs> wanted to learn because. Generally speaking, professors have office hours and it's only the week before the exam that they see a whole <laughs> mess of students come in and, and start asking questions. Well, my son would, would be there every week during those office hours from the, from the second week, the first week he you know, was orientation, would be there. And, and he actually, in that way, kind of advocated for himself yeah. Because he, he was there from the very beginning, he the professors knew he wanted to learn, and so consequently, all of them all of them realized that you know this kid really wants to learn something. Yeah, so, it's a great yeah, Doctor uh, Matsunaga Matsunaga. I'm gonna get it. Terry is fine. <laughs> okay, <Terry. laughs> thank you. I don't know. I I really appreciate your um, sharing your experience with your son, and it's so wonderful that he had such a has such a great advocate in you, and that he was able to advocate. It made me wonder, Kristen, what are our students doing? who aren't able or, or won't advocate for themselves for lots of reasons. I have students in our doctoral program. It takes them a long, long time to come to me, sure. you know, and I'm, and I'm a, I like to think I'm a pretty approachable person. So it makes me wonder, but um, Terry, I, what I really loved what you said, and it really resonated with the description of the, the scholarship. Cause when we started out introducing this, we talked about students who have either diagnosed learning disabilities or do have challenges that are not diagnosed. And, and Terry, what you said was that students have different needs. Absolutely. And I just really loved that because even though we're focusing on our neurodiverse students in this podcast, what we're talking about really does apply to everybody, right? Like we as teachers, researchers, parents, advocates, need to recognize that we all have our own way of sort of approaching this learning. And I don't know, Dr. West, like I was thinking about what you said and what um, Terry said and this, this idea that teachers at their hearts, right at our hearts, love to teach. And like, we do it in spite of some of the structures that are put in front of us, right? Mm -hmm. That why do some of the structures make it harder for us to meet the needs of, of all students? So I don't know, it's a, Kristen, we're going to have to have some, um, 
a follow-up podcast. I think there's so much to, to unpack. So um, Ms. Vor Voral, I wanted to bring you in here because I know you have experience in the, the career development and support area and would just love to hear as as students transition out of higher ed or high school or vocational, wherever they're coming from, and they sort of come to you, what, how are you sort of working? What does it look like for you to work with, with our students? Uh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm just going to kind of add to what everyone talked about and, and things that I felt like are really important for the audience to know. Um, we do see a lot of different things. I mean, quite frankly, what I'm seeing mostly, and I, I hope that this isn't what everyone's seeing, is many, many skilled folks, especially on, this, on the spectrum disorder on, with ASD that are un, un or underemployed, um, working in places where they're working, but they absolutely could be um, in other places using their degrees and their skill sets. We're seeing a lot of that, unfortunately. That takes a lot of education to the employer community, which we're, we're, we're doing every day. Um, and really trying to find our champions, but but being more inclusive and diversifying workforces across the across whether you have a disability or not, uh, you know whether it's race or ethnicity, um, we have a lot of, a lot of lot of room to grow in those areas. Um, but I do I've had a lot of experience in the high school and moving in, and we still work a lot with the high school. So I wanted to piggyback on what a lot of you guys said about. And what you just mentioned, Carrie, about individualizing, um, that the individualized education program, which is the IEP, that word is so important. And anywhere you go, whether it's vocational rehabilitation, which is the state agency that helps employ people with disabilities, um, there's an I in that. There's an I in, in pretty much everywhere you, you go in our state systems. And we need to remember that. And to Simone's point, and, and we don't call it fighting or arguing, you know, with the teens in the schools because it just gets you nowhere. Um, I mean, quite frankly, teachers are overwhelmed. These IEPs are very long. I'm not defending them. I just, I know that our state systems and our federal systems are some of the barriers and getting us what we need to get to our kids. And so always remembering that advocating and collaborating and being that team approach is, is, is really where you're going to see, see success. And, and focusing earlier, earlier, earlier. And I would agree, I would think everyone on here would agree. Yes, the ID, the individual um, with Disabilities Education Act requires by the time they turn 16 to start addressing transition, excuse me, transition and where young people are going. Um, some states it's 14 and we encourage people to look at that law closer to know that you can actually, the team can determine to address it even earlier. And what, because what research is showing in the adult world is if there's there's like 19 different um, predictors of success, parental involvement, work-based learning, meaning I've had an opportunity to work, a paid work while I was in high school. I've engaged in self-advocacy, self-determination. Some of these pieces don't aren't required in our school districts, kind of like to Garrett's point, I mean, we focus so much on academics, but when people leave us, that's not what they need primarily is what the things I've learned have never been. I don't want to say never, but in higher ed, even with a master's degree, it's been my experiences. And I tell people that and parents expectations. Um, I could go on and on and I don't want to also, you know, compromise, but I, I do want the last couple of things I'll say in this space is they are people first. We are all people first. We're not our disabilities first. I think one of you, mention that. And then um, I also am somebody who is constantly telling everybody I train and work with is that I'm trying to work myself out of a job 
because none of us were born to, to be in these spaces forever. It's like we need to advocate and help people have their own voice. Without that voice and being engaged on boards and committees as a person with a disability to um, bring out, you know, to have them part of it and helping us understand the needs, um, we're just going to continue to spin in circles. So I'll leave it at that because there's a lot more, and but I know we're probably short on time. Um, so thank you for letting me add those pieces. Yeah, sure. Kristen, were you going to, I thought you were going to jump in there. Are you going to, oh. Go ahead, Go ahead, Dr. Garrett. Go ahead, Dr. I was Russell. just going to say that one thing that to me feels really relevant to all of this is issues of identity. And that's something just like in my own life, I saw this massive change around. And I think some of it comes from being like the stark difference between like a white male with tons of privilege, right, that I have and get to walk around with until I disclose that I have a learning disability. And then suddenly <laughs> people can discriminate against me that's in ways that like as a white man, I was completely oblivious to the fact that discrimination could look and feel that way. And that's really shaped the work as I've gone forward in my career of that privilege to get to have a hidden disability and choose whether or not to disclose it. But it made it really clear how when I identify as a person with a learning disability, suddenly I am treated drastically differently than I'm treated as just like another white male in your class um, or another someone else like that. And what was also really striking was that, you know, I got a PhD in special education and never once did we talk about the research that connected individuals with dyslexia to success and entrepreneurship. Um, and when I was running a tech startup, Harvard Business Review did this whole case study around individuals with dyslexia being four times more likely to be self-made millionaires. And I think about the massive disservice done to young people. If we never tell a single special education teacher you can get a PhD in the field and make that your life's interest. And no one ever tells you that, oh yeah, by the way, um, there's this great correlation between having dyslexia and being an entrepreneur and being a millionaire. How does that change your sense of identity? And when I ran my tech startup for individuals on the spectrum, it was that same thing. I took people that went from feeling like they were outcasts and different for having really narrow interests to framing that as an entrepreneur. Like, People like Elon Musk and others are crazy. Like they're crazy. They only want to talk about like one thing and you think they're eccentric. And I was working with a whole number of people that when they saw themselves that way and they developed a mobile game around Pokemon, suddenly they were a tech entrepreneur instead of a kid with autism that was weird who just talked about Pokemon. And those issues of identity, I think are really important, especially for young people and then to, to give them those other identities as, as they move through. Absolutely. Ms. Finchez, did you it, want to jump in? Oh, it looks like Ms. Finchez wanted to jump in. Sorry, Kirsten. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I, I just wanted to piggyback off of what Garrett said, because it frustrates me so much to hear that people pigeonhole people. Um, I am an entrepreneur and uh, so is Simone. So a lot of my conversations with Joe would, would uh, gravitate around that. And upon, upon first blush of meeting Joe, you would never have, think he would have any kind of disability. As a matter of fact, I don't really like to use that word. I, I like to use the word other ability because at the end of the day, um, he could listen to conversations. We would talk about entrepreneurship. And then I found out later he was trying his hand on online selling. So he was very, I've grown to learn that there are three types of learners in your classroom setting, right? 
you have your auditory learners, you have your visual learners, you have kinetic learners. Joe is very much a kinetic learner. And I don't know how much that paradigm is challenged when now your other ability, right? Because you're kind of losing your kinetic learners in the classroom because they need to feel, they need to touch, they need to do it. They need to jump into it. And if, if they don't have that, it's just sitting there and they're learning and, and they're just hearing, you're kind of losing them. And so, you know, definitely uh, Joe could have been a Garrett Westlake for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> And Veronica, no doubt, no, knowing Joe, knowing his vivacious personality and his smile, what each one of you have said from Veronica to Dr. Masanaga to Dr. Westlake, uh, uh, Susan, just thinking about that learner, what's the identity? We as the educators, we as the employers, we have the opportunity to be that person who says, I believe in you. I see greatness in you. I don't know what it's going to look like, but you're going to discover it. And it's our role to help them in that discovery process. You know, Dr. West, like you talk a lot about sort of fitting this square peg into a round hole. And what is, what is the education system set up to do? Well, the education system has been turned on its head with the pandemic, right? There's never a greater opportunity for us to reimagine, re-envision what could education look like. But I want us to think through, and, and here's our challenge that we're gonna set for us. This is our opportunity to do an elevator speech in 30 seconds or less. How would you describe the opportunity, maybe one opportunity and one challenge that you see for individuals with neurodiversity because of the pandemic? So an opportunity, a challenge for this population of bright, capable individuals because of the pandemic. And maybe let's just go, and Shakoria, we have not forgotten you. We are saving the best for last. Your voice, we wanna hear it. And so you're, Carrie and I talk in our other podcasts and we laugh and we say, we always have a closer, someone who hits that ball with a home run for that last thing. So we're gonna let you drop the mic with the last part of our podcast today. So we haven't forgotten you. But maybe Susan, if we can start from, with you, and then we'll just go across. Um, Veronica, 30 seconds, advantage, challenge, pandemic, neurodiverse. Lead us off, Susan. Okay. I'll do my best. Um, I would say that some of the opportunities I've seen in the pandemic is to see a person in a different view, um, not just literally, but um, we, we've also seen people with all kinds of disabilities kind of shining because they're in their own element. Um, their family is around them. So there's an opportunity to sort of have this whole person, you know, this, this whole team around them. That's not typically with them all day long, good and bad, but we've, we've seen some good there. Um, the challenge is that it's already hard to be social with some of these disabilities. We know that it carries um, pieces of, that sort of social interaction and, and difficulty and that that being even more remotely and or remote from people and pulled from folks i think that's a challenge for individuals to kind of keep that um you know that going and keeping you know uh, friendships and things like that and so those that's just off the top of my head <laughs> thanks thanks susan that's great veronica 30 seconds you're up well, um, I guess what I'd like to add is just that I, I commend you all for doing this. You know, um, I, I love the idea that no other child is going to have to, you know, have to fall through the crack, crack because of what you're doing. So I just commend all of you. I'm so excited to have the ability to have been on the podcast. And I just want to say as a lay person on the call, thank you.
Thank you. Your voice is important. Dr. Westlake. I, th I think the ability to reach out and talk to someone um, that's done this before, that knows something that you don't know that you can learn from is more accessible now than ever given the pandemic. Um, you've broken down that barrier where it's not like, well, they live over here or they're, you know, we can drop in on anybody um, and, and have a conversation. I think that brings more, exa more inspirational examples to people that otherwise felt very alone. On the flip side, as someone that needs a lot of that like kinetic input and like I struggle to be locked in a room all day, like it reminds me of school. Um, the whole like, you know, I mountain bike to work every day. I get out, I walk to meetings, I'm running, doing 40 million things. And now since the pandemic, I'm literally locked in this room going, losing my mind. Um, and we took a six week family overlanding trip to like drive across the entire United States and like live out of a van and came back. And I'm still just like, oh, we're still doing Zoom. Um, so I think that level of like needing to expend energy is really hard for some people that think they're best when they're out living. Awesome. Simone, would love to hear your voice. Um, oftentimes I imagine what this would be like um, with Joseph and um, during the um, pandemic. And um, what I would, what I would imagine or think is that he would view this as a prime opportunity to do things his way. Um, he would definitely be teaching the teachers, how do you teach me? And I think for students that, um, that have these neurodiversities, this is prime time for them. They're in the spotlight to get exactly what they want. I think that's both a challenge and that's both a benefit. I love that. Excellent. <laughs> Super. Let's go across the board. Mrs. Blissett here, thoughts. Okay. I think um, one opportunity we saw almost immediately was the chance to engage students who don't like to come to school. They were on the call in the beginning, almost every day, or as much as they could be engaging doing the work because they're challenged to come out and socialize and to be amongst their peers. Unfortunately, the downfall of that is it didn't last. And then for those students who, like Garrett said, need that connection, need the socialization, um, it's a struggle to engage those students who need to be out and about. So we're really in the schools, K through 12, really struggling with this whole thing um, because our, our students are so diverse, as you all have said, and they need us to really tailor their education to their learning needs and who they are as individuals. Thank you for that transparency. We need to hear those. The clarion call for help. Mrs. Popo. One of the challenges um, for a lot of my students, even myself, was this feeling of being isolated. Um, and I know um, for a lot of the students, it sort of hinders their desire to learn. But um, I think that for the students to have a highly supportive um, system, the constant communication, I think that really goes a long way to sort of mitigate some of those challenges. And, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of our students, they don't have that teacher who can say, hey, are you okay? And pat them on the back. But I think that 
we can still continue that personal interaction by keeping in contact with our students and just extending a hand through the pandemic and just letting our students know that we're still there for them despite you know the circumstances. So that's one thing. That's key. That's key. Being present. Thank you, Mrs. Popo. Terry. You're muted, Terry. Sorry. During the pandemic, I think it's always hard to, you know, continue to motivate my son to live the dream, to find the, to find the the vocation that that he's been educated for, but but also there's opportunities here. For example, myself, I, I, you know, I think, well, what do I do? You know, I'm sheltered in place too for the last six months. You know, I can't go into my lab. Well, you know, we we kind of learn to work together to. Um, to do the things that every family does when uh, you have a house, you're living in a house, you still have to fix a, le a leaky pipe. You still have to weed every, every garden that you have. You still have to plant vegetables for your vegetable garden. Um, and so we, we've kind of made this an opportunity to learn about the things that, that we all do uh, other than, than being in academia or other being in these high profile and very stressful jobs. What do we do to, to uh, decompress? And that's what that's what we do now. And he's learned quite a lot. He does a lot of things better than me. <laughs> Almost everything, frankly. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's quite a stress reliever as well, to yep. tell you the truth. Kristen, what do you do you have a response as the director of NILD? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think the opportunity to be reflective has been really important, but then to act on that reflection, to see what's been done well, what can be changed, and get the team of voices to not discount or discredit new ideas. Um, ideas from left field, as we've heard of, can be the best ones. So that's been a real opportunity that I've seen. I've seen the challenge is how do we bridge a society that's pretty distinct between the digital natives and those who are immigrants. And how do we bring together a sense of connectedness when technology really is binding us together, but for some it can be very isolating and frustrating, not knowing either having access to or being able to have the facilities to use it. So I see that as a, as a challenge, but one that's not insurmountable. Carrie, how about you? Yeah, if I could play the game too, that was a, I think that was a great question, Kristen, that you posed. I, I've been thinking a lot about everything that's been said here. And first of all, Kristen, we definitely have to have some follow-up podcasts. This has been such a good, but just, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Um, the thing that resonates with me in terms of an opportunity is really what folks have already talked about is this idea that in spite of a lot of the traditional school structures that are in place, you know, we're trying to support our students. And what to me, what these structures often do is they're sort of creating this mirage of smoothing things over, making things fit in buckets and, you know, making sure you're behaving and sitting in your, your seat and following the rules. And, and for me, what the pandemic has done is said, what the heck, what do we have to lose by trying something different? Like we're all sort of try, you know, remote learning, hybrid learning, we don't know what we're doing. So why not try something new? I think the, the, the challenge of that is trying anything new puts us in a place of dissonance, which is awesome because you learn, but it hurts. It doesn't feel good. We're stressed. We're anxious. So we're having all of these like icky feelings right now 
which hopefully will turn into better feelings. Um, but yeah, so that, so to me, that's the sort of challenge of this. It's just, it's just creating a lot of, um, stress, uh, you know, from this, from an opportunity that hopefully I think we'll, we'll take on. So, um, and I think we were going to ask Shakora to have Shakoria to have the last word and she just popped out of the zoom room. So I'm going to try to bring her back in and see if she can share, but I have to say to everybody, and I'm, I know I've said it a couple of times, but I mean it, I hope that we can have, um, Kristen have folks back and I'm thinking, I'm processing this out loud, so it's not a clear thought yet, but I'm thinking maybe we have our K-12 folks come back. We have our higher ed folks, um, um, Simone and Veronica. I'd love to have both of you back as parents and godparents to talk more about, you know, your your work with, um, you know, within the schools and, and your experiences with Joe. So maybe we could um, do that a, a bit more. So Shakoria, you're back, and we're so glad that you were able to come back and We've had a lot of conversation um, around lots of things today. And Shakori, I was wondering, what's it been like for you as a student, uh, both listening to this conversation and also we would love to hear what one sort of stakeholder that I have not had a chance to talk to a lot other than my own kids <laughs> is sort of students um, about their experiences in this pandemic. And we would just love to hear, you know, maybe just for a few brief moments, if you have some thoughts that you'd love to share or some reflections. Mm, I'm not sure that, is she there, Kristen, you think? Um, maybe just um, unmute yourself, Shakoria. You may be talking and we can't yet hear you. Yes. There we go. Still can't hear you, so. Well, we may have to save Shakoria for the next podcast, Kristen. That just means we have to have her back because I can't. I think I think the intentionality that means Shakoria gets her <laughs> own podcast, right? She she and some others. Um, Shakoria, we'll try one more time. We see that you're unmuted. Let's see if we can hear your voice. No, I know. Oh. Yeah, she may be calling you. Well, you know, that's one of those teasers, right? Just feel like this was a trailer and whetted our appetite. And then here we go. You will not want to miss the Tell Me This podcast, the listening tour, when Shakoria joins us the next time and has an opportunity to, to share your voice. Because you are what matters. You are a reason that this whole group is together and how we can support you, your colleagues, and um, just continue to enable you to inspire us with the abilities that you have, the new insights that you will be sharing with us and what you'll bring to your communities and the greater whole. Shakoria, any chance we can hear you yet? No, we're gonna have to save it. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to save it for the next one. So I just wanna express my um, just sincere gratitude for everybody taking time. I know during the pandemic, especially time is really um, a scarce resource. So I really do appreciate everybody taking time and, and especially Dr. West, like I'm, I know that you don't like being on Zoom. So I appreciate your patience <laughs> uh, for being on Zoom. It has been, um, it's been a real pleasure. And for folks who don't know the podcast, I really started this podcast um, I had an amazing relationship with my 96 year old grandmother who passed away. It'll be a year. I can't believe it. it'll be a year in November. And I decided to start this podcast kind of to honor her memory. And she was such a great storyteller and was always willing 
to listen and really wanted to learn from all of her grandchildren and her children. And she honestly used to say, when I would come over, she would say, tell me this, Carrie. And that's really how we would start a lot of conversations. And that's where the title of the podcast came. So in the spirit of my grandmother, I have so appreciated getting to know each of you. And as she would say, it's so good to know you. I appreciate having you in my orbit now. I have appreciated hearing your stories and I will look forward to hearing more about your stories in the future. So Kristen, thanks so much for making this connection. Um, and thanks to everybody for taking time out. So take care. Thanks. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Carrie Borkowski, thanks so much for sticking around and listening to that great interview with uh, that wonderful group of people. Our um, awareness, advocacy, and intervention podcast listening tour. It was great to hear from these folks, and I really appreciated Joe Staley Jr.'s mom coming on and his godmother coming on and talking a little bit about Joe. I'm hoping in future podcasts we can have maybe smaller groups of them back so we can dig in a little bit more to some of the conversations we were having. We just didn't have enough time to get through everything, but that's always the way. There were so many themes and ideas that sort of popped up during that conversation. I was taking furious notes and thinking about future podcasts, and I I have to remember that this is a podcast about belonging, right? This idea that we want to make sure that we are being seen, that our students are being seen, that we're seeing and creating um, climates and environments where our students and family members and neighbors feel like they're themselves, they are reflected in those spaces and places that we navigate every day. And so I think it was totally appropriate that we were talking um, to these, this amazing group of folks around students with learning differences and the advocates and the paraprofessionals and the career professionals and the parents and caregivers who work so hard to make sure that these students are seen. Um, and I, I just commend them for all the work they're doing. And as I said in the intro, we were focused on neurodiversity and, and students that have learning differences. And at the same time, I couldn't help but think about the situation that we find ourselves in around race, the terrible racial injustice that we're seeing around this country and the, the racist sentiment. And in the good news is that, that many people are starting to focus conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I really couldn't help but think about inclusivity in a broader sense, that it really is that we need to celebrate all differences faculty, students, staff, teachers, families, caregivers, and really make sure that we're honoring and valuing, that we're no longer tolerating um, or even ignoring, right? I mean, in the 80s and maybe early 90s, the, the sort of vogue thing to talk about was being colorblind. And I was definitely guilty of that and have come to realize that gosh, that was just doing my students and, and friends and, and colleagues a disservice because there are differences and we should be talking about those differences and celebrating and noticing um, how those differences contribute to the learning in the spaces. And so I thought as we wrapped up this podcast for the day today, we could talk a little bit more about 
you know, what does it mean to foster an inclusive classroom, right? Or, and it doesn't have to be a classroom. So if you're not a teacher or you're not in an ed space, it could be um, a board meeting. It could be your organization, your nonprofit, your for-profit company. It could be, you know, a community meeting you're having. How do you foster this idea of inclusive teaching and, sorry, inclusive inclusivity and just this sort of idea of an inclusive um, climate and environment? And really, as I said, this goes back to true belonging and and um, seeing yourself in these spaces and how do we do that. And so um, I found an article, I think it was, yeah, it's Inside Higher Education, and it was uh, posted online August 5th, 2020, and it's um, a couple of uh, authors, Addie, Dubé, and Mitchell, talking about... Um, inclusivity and it is available I know some oftentimes you need to have a subscription to inside higher education in this case this one is publicly available and I will be sure that we link it out on under the show notes for this week's podcast and so they you know the instructors in this article talked about strategies that you could do or sort of they talked about small tweaks that you could make in your courses to make them more welcoming to learners. And so they talked about, you know, not assuming students had prior knowledge on course topics and providing more instructional support. So let's take it out of the classroom for a second. Let's think about, um, I don't know, let's, let's say you go to a community meeting and the facilitators are talking about a particular topic and maybe using language and vocabulary that's not familiar. Well, one way to, to, you know, increase the the feelings of inclusivity is for those facilitators and for others in the room to make sure that we're all on the same page if you will that we understand the language that's being used and we understand to some degree the context in which we're talking about this so not assuming that everybody comes to the table with the same knowledge because we don't we have different experiences we have different backgrounds we filter information in different ways so really clarifying that I really love this second one because I as a professor, I I think about this, but for different reasons, and I'll explain in a second. So the second tip that they give is to eliminate high-cost course materials and support, support students in using earlier editions of textbooks. And so, you know, I definitely have always done this in my practice, but it was mostly because I just, I just thought, gosh, some of this stuff is just so expensive. What could I do to sort of help them, you know, reduce the cost of, of coming to college? And the reality is it's much bigger than that, right? It's it's access. It's why would you create a barrier, which is just the high cost barrier of obtaining a textbook um, so that in order to learn, right? Um, there's enough challenges and barriers in the way that now you're gonna put on top, you're gonna you're gonna make the students or anybody who wants to join the group, you know, pay an additional cost. And I have to say, and I, I hope you've noticed in the last couple of weeks, Brianna and I have been really sensitive to the kinds of barriers that are put up, you know, and create access problems. And, and that happens um, in, in our context, it happens all the time through the pub- publishing process. And, you know, we could do a whole podcast and more on the, the publication, you know, the peer-reviewed publication process. But the the bottom line is if you don't have an affiliation with a university or some sort of academic or researchy kind of institution, it can be pretty hard to get access to journals. And so when we're talking about disseminating 
information and sharing work, we have to be really mindful of how we do that because, you know, it may not be a high cost textbook, but it's a high cost journal article, just having access to those databases. And even if you can find the journal on the web, if you don't have a subscription to buy a single article, it can be really expensive. So I really appreciated that reminder. Another small tweak um, they talked about and I just mentioned earlier is this idea of highlighting diverse individuals in the field. And so this, this plays, I feel like, a couple of roles. One is it goes back to why color being colorblind is just terrible, right? That we really should be valuing and identifying the contributions of diversity. Diversity in and of itself is not helpful, but being able to acknowledge and show how having diversity in the classroom, in your boardroom, can really add to the learning and just bring a richer, fuller conversation and picture of the situation. The other thing I really like about this, highlighting diverse individuals in the field, and we talked a little bit about this in the interview, I think, Dr. Westlake and a few others brought it up, <coughs> was this idea of role models that students with learning differences, if we're not talking about those learning differences and we're not sharing the contributions that these students make and the potential that these students bring in our classrooms, and we're not sharing and acknowledging the success stories of other students who have who have just uh, struggled with dyslexia, for example, I bring that one up because Dr. Dr. Westlake mentioned it. He talked about research that shows that entrepreneurs and innovators, you know, have had you know have had d dyslexia, and some of those with who have suffered or or um, uh, struggled with dyslexia actually go on to be quite successful and are often, you know, multimillionaires is I think what he was talking about. And so this all goes back to perceptions of belonging and creating social presence. If, if these students don't see other role models and see that it's possible, right, bringing these diverse individuals into the fold, then it can be quite disheartening for these students and, and teachers and faculty and individuals. Another tweak that they talk about is this idea of co-developing collaborative classroom guidelines with students. And I know you've heard me and, and Brianne talk about this on previous podcasts, but this whole idea of wherever there's an opportunity to um, ask for and add the student's voice or the participant's voice or a staff member's voice, whatever context you find yourself in, that's really powerful, right? Because not only are you building these collaborative guidelines, you're also building trust, you're building connections, you're cultivating relationships, and you're showing just by virtue of the act that you value the different voices in the room. So just co-constructing this work together is not only being inclusive and creating this sort of collaborative document, it's actually enacting that work as you go through the process. The last one they mentioned, and I think um, <clears throat> Brianne has talked about this on a previous podcast, and it's, it's this idea of providing alternative assignments for individuals who were unable to attend class um, for a variety of reasons, or just providing choice. I mean, I've definitely done that with students you know, you have a particular final assignment or a midterm assignment and you're, you know, you're sort of examining their progress on a particular topic. And why does it have to be one way, right? 
We know that students and individuals learn in different ways. They're sort of attracted to different kinds of products and outcomes. And so why not give them choices? And so this is just reminding us of that tweak that you could give, provide alternative assignments to different students. And so the article goes on for a bit longer and they share later about how the students responded. They collected some data about how the students responded. And as you might imagine, um, some of the quotes were just amazing. Things like, um, my professor really tried to get to know everyone in the class. I think this form really helped them to do this. Um, I think this allowed my professor to really get to know the students more. They continued to relate to us through the semester. It made people feel more included and represented. It demonstrated the importance of diversity in our classroom. And I think it was important to acknowledge, especially when dealing with classes that require discussion and sharing ideas and opinions. Um, I just really love that. I mean, if you're going to engage with your class in any sort of discussion, you've got to know and have a sense of who these students are, who these individuals are, and be prepared to talk about, you know, the, the topics when differences arise, because trust me, differences will come up. And you also have to be prepared to moderate and talk about um, topics or comments that come up that might be uncomfortable. So, so that's one article. It was, as I said, it's Inside Higher Ed, Fostering an Inclusive Classroom. And it was Addie Dube, I think D-U-B-E, I'm sorry if I'm saying it incorrectly, and Mitchell. <clears throat> and it was August 5th, 2020. We will post it on our website. Tell me this. Dot com. It's tell-me-this.com, and we will put it under the show notes for this week's um, episode. And so, again, I hope you really enjoyed the interview. I feel like there was so much to unpack. I really just barely <laughs> peeled the layer, peeled sort of one layer of the onion, if you will, to talk a little bit about what it means to to be an inclusive teacher or to facilitate an inclusive meeting or classroom. So I hope you really enjoyed it. Um, if you have a chance, if you listen through Apple podcasts and you want to give us a rating, that would be great. Um, if you listen through Stitcher, I think there's also a place to give us a five-star rating. It really helps to increase the listenership. And please, if you haven't already go out and check out our website, tellmethis.com. And in the next few weeks, hopefully fingers crossed, um, we'll be, um, creating a new, um, email address for the podcast and also a mailing list and a very short um, newsletter that you c you'll be able to subscribe to. So please be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, I hope you are staying well, staying safe, and everyone in your orbit is healthy. Thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski. Take care. So sincere under the glare. Your last year Someday searching for melodies Pulling around in mountain streams Galaxies we Do you want to simplify your school's technology? 
save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.